Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at where in the world is Carmen Sandiego, an edutainment geographic adventure game developed and published by Brotobund in 1985 for a significant number of computer platforms, including... MS-DOS, Apple II, Commodore 64, FM Towns, and Amiga, and probably others beyond that. We're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 57. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is probably the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the podcast community. We have a ton of fun out on Discord, a lot of active discussions. And we also have our Weekend Gaming Challenge. This weekend's gaming challenge was all about mature games, as inspired by Conqueror's Bad Fur Day, which we talked about last week. So we did have a few different titles in play this past weekend, and ISO was able to complete 30 out of the 40 points associated with the challenge. That maintained his lead at the top of the leaderboard. He currently has 117 points. I was actually able to complete most of the October monthly challenges, which were all community-driven. I'm currently in second place with 59 points, but I will only only be competing in those community challenges, so I do not anticipate keeping my own spot on the leaderboard. Uh, Bookie Gnu did not have a chance to compete this weekend. He was actually doing some family-friendly things, which really wasn't conducive to mature games. So he remains in third place with 58 points. Rich Senewald is in fourth place with 40 points. I am the Dizzle, fifth place with 19 points. And left-handed guitarist added six points this past weekend. That brings his total up to nine. So we are going to continue to have our weekend gaming challenge on a weekly basis, obviously. So if you do want to get involved there, Discord is definitely the place to do it we have a ton of fun out there there's all sorts of weird challenges that get posted and you do not have to be the leader or the winner in order to win prizes this season is probably going to last through the end of the year so anybody who does want to get out there get involved discord is the spot to be the link for discord once again is in the show notes I should mention that we also have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. A lot of cool stuff comes along with that, including a Patreon exclusive podcast that releases once every other week. And we also have a specific discord channel for our patrons and also some exclusive blog posts out there on Patreon as well. So if you want even more classic gaming today, goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it is at. I would also like to shout out our Pantheon patrons. They are ISO, Rich Senewald, and David Morton. Thank you guys for supporting the show, and thank you all for supporting the show. Whether you contribute monetarily or you simply listen on a regular basis, I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. 
We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. How was the game made? Why was the game made? And then we go into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or give it a bunch of stars or anything like that. But we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You owe it to yourself to go out and play that today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend you play them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game in question or you like the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. These are still amazing experiences. They're not quite Pantheon level, but... I still wholeheartedly recommend that you try these games out today. Beyond our golden oldies, we reach the mediocre mentions. These are the games where we start talking about experiences that I cannot recommend to the broader population. They've either aged a bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. But for the vast majority of people, you don't really want to play the mediocre mentions unless you're particularly curious about them. But then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego is an edutainment geographic adventure game developed and published by Broderbund back in 1985 for almost any computer system that had an electronic pulse. Before we can talk about Carmen Sandiego, though, we've got to go a bit further back in history to talk about what is widely considered to be the first adventure game ever created. Because, as we're going to see, Carmen Sandiego was not originally designed as an edutainment title, but was instead meant to be an enhancement to the traditional text-based parser games of the late 1970s and early 80s. So you might be asking, what is widely considered to be the first adventure game ever created? The answer to that is, of course, Colossal Cave Adventure, which was originally written by a programmer named William Crowther back in 1975 and based largely on his own personal experience exploring Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Crowther and his wife Patricia were both avid cave explorers and had taken part in a number of joint expeditions as part of the Cave Research Foundation in the early 1970s. 
The Crowther couple would take great efforts to map out the cave systems they were exploring, eventually converting their mapping coordinates into a format readable by a computer, which would then print out actual maps of caves that the two had explored, which, by the way, wasn't really a thing in the early 1970s. Nowadays, if you need a map, you simply Google it and print out the resulting image. Back in 1972, though, this technology was still in its infancy, and Crowther's work represented some of the earliest computer-drawn maps ever created. The Crowthers would continue participating in a variety of cave exploration expeditions until, eventually, the two had a falling out and subsequently divorced in 1975. With Patricia being a key member of the expeditionary team, William decided to step away from the hobby, primarily because it'd be a little bit awkward having to share that experience with his ex-wife on a daily basis. Rather than deal with that awkwardness, he simply decided to focus on other endeavors. Crowther's divorce, though, had farther-reaching impacts than simply affecting one of his hobbies, as he also ended up in a situation where he couldn't see his daughters as much as he previously had. He attempted to fill his time with other activities, such as the recently released tabletop role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons, but as you might expect, it was a pale substitute for spending time with his family. In an attempt to rekindle that spark, as well as take advantage of his past interests, Crowther decided in 1975 to create a computer game that would marry his prior caving experience with technology, with the goal of designing something that would be accessible to individuals that had no prior computer programming experience. Meaning, he wanted to create an experience that a non-technical computer user could play and enjoy without needing to know the intricacies of the program itself. His thought was, if he could create something simple to play, his daughters might take an interest in it and it would, in a way, provide a means for him to engage with his daughters despite his recent divorce. So, Crowther began designing a game with the core concept being the exploration of an expansive cave system, coupled with some more fantastical elements that were influenced directly by his time spent playing Dungeons & Dragons. This game would utilize a brand new interface for user input, whereby rather than type in programming-esque commands for the computer to execute, the player could type in natural language commands that the computer would be able to interpret. Using this text parser interface, the player would be able to explore the world, pick up and interact with items, and otherwise play the entire game simply by talking to the computer, or at least so to speak. This text-based interface and the game Crowther created would become a staple of nearly every adventure game that followed, and would influence countless game developers and designers over the years. One of those designers, and perhaps the most famous designer to speak about Colossal Cave Adventure's influence, was Roberta Williams, the famed co-founder of Online Systems, which would eventually become Sierra Online, a company that would become a behemoth in the adventure game industry. The whole reason Williams began creating adventure games in the first place was because of how enamored she was playing Colossal Cave Adventure. And in fact, just this past year, Roberta and husband Ken Williams released a fully 3D virtual reality-enabled recreation of Colossal Cave Adventure, complete with Will Crowther's approval. I haven't played that one yet, but I am definitely curious. Another developer who was ultimately influenced by Crowther's early adventure game was a man named Dane Bigham, who in 1983 was working on a new title for the famous game publishing company Broderbund. 
Broderbund Software was founded in 1980 by brothers Doug and Gary Carlston, and would grow into one of the biggest game publishers in the world, eventually becoming synonymous with both computer games and software, with perhaps its biggest claim to fame being the release of the puzzle-adventure game Myst, which would become the highest-selling computer game of all time shortly after its release in 1993, and would, by extension, spawn a series of imitators and clones over the years. Back in the early 80s, though, Broderbund was known for decidedly less complex releases, with games such as Load Runner, Choplifter, and Karatika being their biggest releases of the time. The interesting thing was, Broderbund was not at all interested in creating any sort of computer software themselves. They were completely content simply being a publisher of other people's work. And that publishing business, by the way, was pretty darn lucrative, as within three years of its founding, Broderbund would become the 10th largest computer entertainment software company in the entire world. Despite that publishing success, Broderbund would eventually begin to consider making its own internally developed games, with the first such title assigned to computer programmer Dane Bigham to bring to life. Bigham, like many computer game aficionados of the time, had been incredibly impressed with Will Crowther's colossal cave adventure, and when he was first asked to begin working on a Broderbund-developed title in 1983, his first idea was to create an adventure title for children, something that would be as engaging to the younger generation of gamers as colossal cave adventure was to more mature players. There was just one problem. While colossal cave adventure was a unique, revolutionary title, its interface wasn't exactly the most easy to use. As with many text-based adventures of the time, the entire interface was lacking any sort of graphical capabilities, and user input was handled via a text parser, which brought its own set of challenges. We've talked about text parser inputs before, and in particular, some of the issues that people like Ron Gilbert noticed in old-school adventure games. The biggest issue, by far, with text parser-driven titles is that the player has to guess what series of inputs the game is expecting in order to execute any given command. Depending on how robustly a specific game was designed, there were varying degrees of flexibility available to the end user. Looking at a purely hypothetical example, assume you're playing a game and you navigate into a room that has, in the game's words, a shiny bronze key on a nearby table. If you play adventure games like I do, your first order of business is likely to try to get that key into your pockets because there's a very real likelihood that you'll need it at some point. So, let's say you type the command, pick up key, into the game's parser. Some games might interpret that command as you would expect, and the key magically appears in your inventory. Other games, though, might complain and say something like, there's no key here, because that particular game might be expecting you to type pick up shiny bronze key before it recognizes which object you're referring to. Other games might complain and say pick up command not recognized, because that particular game expects you to use the verb get as opposed to pick up. While many games were designed with synonyms for objects and verbs, the fact is, interacting with these early text adventure titles was anything but straightforward, and it ultimately created friction that could cause players to become frustrated with the game. Dane Bigham recognized this issue, and he further understood that if more mature players were having these frustrations, trying to design a text parser adventure title for children would be an even harder task. So he came up with an alternative. What if... 
rather than using a text-based parser, he could design a game using a menu-driven interface, where players could select from a list of commands as opposed to trying to figure out what specific words the game would actually recognize. With the advent of the more powerful computer systems such as the Apple II, Bigum believed he could design an engaging experience with high-quality, at least for the time, graphics, and a simplified interface that could literally be picked up and played by anyone. With that goal in mind, Bigum began designing the title, basing its general concept on the childhood game of Cops and Robbers, where basically the player would be a good guy and his or her goal would be to catch a number of bad guys through solving puzzles and navigating a variety of environments. Bigum brought that idea to a couple members of the creative team at Brodermund. Gene Portwood, who was a former Disney illustrator who worked on such classic films as Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, and Captain Hook, and his partner Lauren Elliott who was more of an idea person responsible for bringing new and exciting gaming experiences to life, as well as working with various independent developers to help build out Broderbund's stable of published titles. Portwood and Elliot were effectively partners in crime, and would over time become very influential in identifying and working with early talent that would eventually become major players in the video game industry. As an example, Portwood and Elliot were the project managers responsible for overseeing the title Raid on Bungling Bay, which was the very first computer game developed by a young software developer by the name of Will Wright. Some of you might recognize that name, but for those who don't, Will Wright would go on to co-found the company Maxis, which was responsible for developing and popularizing the entire sim genre of games, including SimCity and its various sequels, as well as related tangential titles like Sim Life, Sim Earth, Sim Ant, and Sim almost any other thing that could be simulated. He was also responsible for creating The Sims, which was a life management title that incidentally took over millions of people's lives when it was released, as well as Spore, a life simulator with unique genetics mechanics that would determine how various species and life forms would spring into existence. Mild tangent aside, Portwood and Elliot were responsible for a number of Broderbund's creative endeavors, and when Bigham brought his Cops and Robbers adventure idea to the duo, he was hoping to get the green light to proceed. What he didn't expect was to meet some resistance, though that's exactly what ended up happening, as Portwood in particular just wasn't terribly keen on the idea. He felt that the concept, while okay, just wasn't focused enough to develop a story around. Bigum, to his credit, did not relent, and he would go through a number of design revisions until eventually he came up with a concept whereby players would solve a single case at a time, as opposed to being placed into an unstructured world filled with a variety of criminals. This more structured approach to the game did finally get Portwood's attention, and all three agreed that this was an idea that had merit. So, Bigum, Portwood, and Elliot began working on refining the concept further, with work progressing on plan and without issue. That is, until Brodobund co-founder Gary Carlston decided that a change in direction was in order. Carlston, in his youth, had been a prolific traveler, and as a child in the 1950s, he accompanied his family on numerous trips across Europe, visiting various countries and learning more about each location's culture, people, and social norms. When Carlston heard about the new children's adventure game Bigum and the team were working on, he had an idea. What if, rather than create a children's adventure title, Bigum could create a game focused on geography and culture? Carlston believed that such a title would be unique in the computer game market, and because he enjoyed learning about various nations when he was younger, he assumed other children would want to have a similar experience through playing this forthcoming game. 
Carlston was very excited about the prospect that his idea presented. Dane Bigham, however, was not. He actually was pretty opposed to the thought of changing his game, and he didn't believe this new focus on geography would be as well-liked as his Cops and Roberts concept. While Bigham would continue to work on the title, he turned his attention to parts of the game that were story agnostic, namely the previously mentioned menu-driven interface. His thought was, he didn't really want to work on a geography-driven story, but he still had ownership over the control scheme he had come up with, so that's where he would focus his attention. Carlston, despite Bigham's resistance, was not deterred, as he hired a different writer, David Siefkin, to create the geographic narrative that would eventually form the framework for the game. Now, interestingly, Siefkin had also been a fan of Colossal Cave Adventure, so when he sat down to begin writing the story for this future title, he took a number of inspirations from that game, albeit with a more geographic slant. He conceptualized a conversion of sorts, where the cave system would instead become a map of the world, and the individual rooms in the cave would become various countries. Instead of objects to be picked up, Siefkin created a number of geographic and cultural clues which he expected the player to observe and use to help determine which country they should explore next. While Siefkin assumed that young players would eventually learn the facts embedded in the game through trial and error, Gary Carlston had another ingenious idea that would provide even more potential educational content. He wanted every single copy of the game to be shipped with a copy of the World Almanac, providing a reference material for would-be world adventurers and geographic sleuths to look up and decipher the game's clues. Other than Bigham, pretty much everyone else on the team really enjoyed this concept, and shortly after Siefkin completed his first draft, the game's working title would be revealed to the team. Broderbund's first internally developed title would be the world-spanning, geographic-focused adventure known as World Quest. With work on World Quest continuing to progress, attention shifted to how to create the driving purpose behind all of the world exploration players would be tasked with, and here Siefkin and the team developed a number of villains that players would have to track and eventually apprehend. These villains would all be part of an organization called Vile, which stood for the Villains International League of Evil, and their sole purpose in life was to steal as many priceless world artifacts that they could get their hands on. Players, by contrast, would belong to a detective agency named Acme, which randomly stood for a company that makes everything, which was most likely a nod to the classic cartoon shows that prominently featured Acme-made products in their episodes. So, the game had a general structure, the player had a goal, and the bad guys had a purpose. But the title of the game, World Quest, didn't exactly have the kind of appeal that the team thought would resonate with consumers. It did adequately describe the concept behind the game, but honestly, it kind of sounds like a piece of reference software or an encyclopedia, which isn't exactly what the development team was going for. One day, while reviewing a list of the game's villains, the project manager for the title, Catherine Bird, noticed the name Carmen Sandiego, which she thought sounded exotic and mysterious, and possibly a moniker that could transcend the singular character currently included in Siefkin's script. Almost immediately, Bird and the team decided to refocus the narrative of the title to move Carmen Sandiego more into the spotlight, with Carmen taking on the role as the most cunning of all the villains included in the game, someone who has worked with so many groups and double-crossed so many people that she can't even remember who she's working for at any point in time. 
Most members of the team really liked this concept, as did Gary Carlston, who believed putting a female character front and center would appeal to the female demographic that had oftentimes not been represented in games up to this point. With that shift, World Quest would be no more, and instead, the game would be rechristened as Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? One person who wasn't particularly happy about the title, or the game for that matter, was original programmer Dane Bigham. While he did stay on the project and contributed to the creation of the game as well as its interface, which would in fact utilize the menu-driven structure he had originally conceptualized, he was so disenfranchised with Broderbund for not allowing him to make the game he wanted to make that he took a personal leave from the company right around the time Carmen Sandiego would release to the market. He was convinced that the title would fall flat, that this whole geography quest kind of game just wouldn't have any degree of popularity amongst the gaming community more keen on playing faster-paced arcade-style titles. So Bigham left the company for several months, and upon his return, he fully expected to learn that Carmen Sandiego was a total flop. The reality, though? was that Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego would become something nobody on the team had ever anticipated. When Carmen Sandiego was created, it was never intended to be a purely educational title. Sure, while playing the game, the hope was that players would learn something new about geography and various countries' cultures, but the game was designed from the ground up to be, at its core, simply a game. When Carmen Sandiego released to the market in 1985, Broderbund was hoping consumers would buy the title, as you would expect. And the fact is, they did, as Carmen Sandiego would become a legitimate blockbuster, selling hundreds of thousands of copies over the first couple years of its release, which was good enough for it to become the second best-selling computer game of all time as of 1989. Beyond that direct consumer success, though, Carmen Sandiego would also find a foothold in many elementary schools across the world, as educators looked at the title as something that was not only fun, but could also teach students something in a more engaging format than traditional classroom sessions. And let me tell you, they were absolutely right. My first exposure to Carmen Sandiego was, in fact, in my school's library, where I thought that the combination of real-world geography combined with figuring out which criminal had committed a given caper was incredible. Every chance I got, I asked for a library pass, simply to play the game. And let's say I got to the library and someone else was at the computer, that person almost always was playing Carmen Sandiego. It was so popular that people would gather around that singular library computer just to watch someone play the game. I've got to impress this on all of you. This is not the kind of game that typically lends itself to people gathering around to watch it. It's not like it was a mega arcade hit like Dragon's Lair or something terribly advanced graphically. It was simply a well-developed, engaging experience, and even better, it was a game that you could play at school without getting in trouble. Anyway, putting aside sales figures, Carmen Sandiego would also be a critical success as many reviewers praised the game's use of real-world locales and engaging, thought-provoking gameplay. Nearly everyone who played it learned something while playing it, but the thing is, it never felt like work or studying. People were learning facts and having fun doing it, which many reviewers explained was a tricky move by Broderbund, and one that would prove to be hugely successful. 
it wouldn't take long before Carmen Sandiego morphed from a single game into an entire media franchise, with multiple re-releases and deluxified versions, as well as a ton of spin-offs such as Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego, Where in the USA is Carmen Sandiego, Where in Europe is Carmen Sandiego, and perhaps most specifically, Where in North Dakota is Carmen Sandiego, which I've got to believe appealed to a very niche subset of the gaming population. But hey, if it works, it works. Carmen Sandiego would also expand to television, where Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego became an after-school hit children's game show, at least here in North America. I fondly remember watching that show nearly every day after school, and the theme song, as sung by acapella vocal group Rockapella, still sticks in my head as clearly today as it did when I first heard it in the 90s. I used to dream of being a participant on the show, flexing my geographical knowledge in front of a live studio audience in the hopes of winning the game and earning the right to prompt the start of the show's ending theme song by screaming, Do it, Rockapella! I know, that might sound strangely specific, and perhaps a tad weird, but if you saw the show as a kid, I bet you that you had the same daydream at some point. Beyond my nostalgic memories, even today, Carmen Sandiego remains in the pop culture spotlight, with Netflix having created an animated series based on the Carmen Sandiego character just several years ago. I'm not sure if that series gained any degree of success, but regardless, I am glad it exists, if only to introduce a new generation of children to a character and franchise that I personally enjoyed immensely when I was younger. Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? is one of those rare titles that transcended its original focus to become something else entirely. Despite never intending to create a blockbuster edutainment title, Brodobun succeeded in creating something that would become a cornerstone in schools everywhere, while at the same time delivering a worthwhile, engaging experience that gamers around the world would enjoy. Speaking from personal experience... There wasn't much like Carmen Sandiego when it was originally released, and while future versions would add a bunch of bells and whistles over the years, there is something to be said about the simplicity of Carmen Sandiego's first adventure, which from my perspective is one of the more approachable games released in the mid-80s. And I'd wager a bet that anyone who has played the game, especially those of us who had the pleasure of spending hours in their school's library crowded around an old CRT screen trying to solve geographic capers, will likely remember the experience and the fun it provided forever. We are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego today? versus when it was released back in 1985, almost 40 years ago. So like we talked about, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego ultimately became an edutainment title. And if I recall correctly, this is the first edutainment title that we've talked about on this podcast, so I'm pretty excited to dive right in. But first, a word about versions. Carmen Sandiego has been released, re-released, remastered, re-remastered, deluxified, and special edition-ified multiple times over the years. So any discussion about a given playthrough has to first identify what version of the game we're talking about. For this episode of the podcast, I ended up playing the original DOS version of the title, which comes with its own quirks, eccentricities, and features. I should mention, though, that this 
isn't the version that I have the most nostalgia for, because, like many individuals around my age, Carmen Sandiego was a staple on our school's library computer systems, and I remember countless hours spent at school just playing Carmen Sandiego. In America around this time, which would be the later 80s into the early 90s, Apple was the de facto standard for educational computers, so the version I ended up playing in school was one of the deluxe versions for the Apple II line of computers, complete with color graphics and advanced, and I say that in quotes, audio capabilities. But I wanted to get the original Carmen Sandiego experience for this episode, so from here on out, everything I say is going to be based on the 1985 DOS version of the title which I believe had feature parody with the original Apple II release of the title. Anyway, personal history and explanation aside, let's talk about where in the world is Carmen Sandiego. The first thing you need to do, if you decide to play this version of Carmen Sandiego in modern times, is something that will make your playthrough much less confusing, especially early on. Take a seat down by your computer. Glance at your mouse. You know, the thing that besides providing an intuitive interface for computer gaming and navigation also provides a convenient hand rest for when you're simply reading something on your monitor. You know, yeah, that thing. Take it and hide it. Stuff it behind your monitor, in a drawer, somewhere out of sight. Because the original version of Carmen Sandiego was born from text-based adventures, and as a result, there is absolutely no mouse input used in the game at all. In fact, I'm not even sure Carmen Sandiego knows what a mouse is. This is a 100% keyboard-driven affair. Mouse-exclusive users need not apply. Okay, I know the whole mouse thing was a bit silly, but I mention it simply to relay the age of this title, as well as the level set expectations as to what we're going to be looking at. Here's the interesting thing, though. I actually feel that the lack of mouse input is a benefit to the experience. From my perspective, it surprisingly makes the game more fun to play. Carmen Sandiego is structured around the concept of cases and promotion. As you play the game, you receive instructions from your detective agency, ACME, about any number of a variety of capers that different villains around the world have committed, and it's up to you to track the fugitive through various geographic locations, while at the same time identifying who that fugitive is, and ultimately getting a warrant for their arrest. Assuming you solve enough cases, you'll eventually be promoted, which occurs multiple times throughout your playthrough, until eventually you're taking on the vile mastermind herself, Carmen Sandiego. Catch her, and you've truly reached the Acme Detective Hall of Fame, which basically means you've beaten the game. Those individual cases that you'll solve over the course of a playthrough are entirely random, and at runtime, the game determines several different elements that make up a given case. Some artifact will be chosen at random, which will coincide with a specific country and or city, which provides the starting point for your adventure. A suspect will also be selected at random, though the only thing you'll know at first is whether the individual is male or female. It's up to you to find different clues to narrow down who the suspect actually is. You know what, let's take a step back. The best way to understand how the game plays is to actually walk through a representative example of how a case plays out. Because every case is structured identically. If you understand how one case works, you understand how the entire game works overall. So, when you fire up the game, you get to type in your detective's name. 
If you have a pre-existing character, meaning you've played the game before using that name, the game will find your detective records and assign you a case. If not, the game will create a new character and assign you a case. From that point, everything plays out the exact same way, whether you're a new or returning player. You'll receive a notice from the Acme Detective Agency, listing an artifact that's been stolen, where the artifact was stolen from, and whether the culprit was a male or female. Then, you're sent off to whatever location the artifact was taken from, and notified that you only have until Sunday at 5pm to complete your investigation, with each case beginning at 9am on Monday. With your orders in hand, you're now left on your own to begin your investigation. Investigating each geographic location involves going to one of three different locations at each city, which are places like libraries, harbors, palaces, airports, and other fairly common buildings and locations you might find in a major city. Depending on where you go to, you might receive a clue as to what that suspect's next location was, such as the color of the next country's flag, or you might receive a clue about the suspect's description, like whether they have a tattoo. Occasionally, the clue will contain both pieces of info, which is like a double win when that happens. Your goal at each location is to determine where the next city or country is that you'll need to navigate to, and to help with that, the game allows you to see what cities are connected to the location you're currently in. So, as an example, let's say you're currently in New York. You might have two connections from that location, one to Montreal, Canada, the other to Paris, France. Without clues from the spot you're currently at, determining where to go next would be a total guess. But it's possible that one of the individuals you speak with might say something to the effect of, the suspect was interested in converting their currency to dollars. With that clue in hand, you can now determine that Montreal is the next location, because its local currency is dollars, as opposed to Paris, which at the time the game was made, used the franc as its primary unit of currency. So, you travel to Montreal via an Indiana Jones-esque world map with accompanying flight path and continue your investigation, going through the same exact steps of gathering clues to determine the next location and more info about the suspect. Now, I should mention that every action you take all takes up a certain amount of time, whether that's exploring a building in a city, traveling to a different geographic location, or attempting to get an arrest warrant. Some of those actions may only take a couple of hours, while the act of traveling can take considerably longer, depending on where you're traveling to and its distance from your current location. Because time is a factor in this game, and is a somewhat scarce resource, it behooves you to try to be accurate in traveling to your next location. If you don't pick the correct spot, you'll arrive in a location where the locals have no pertinent info to give you, forcing you to backtrack to your prior location and try again. Depending on the distance, you may end up wasting a day or more simply in incorrect travel, which can really put a damper on your investigation. If you do choose the correct city or country, though, you'll be presented with an indicator that you're on the right track the next time you explore one of the country's locations. This can be something like seeing a suspect run across the screen, a knife flying into a nearby wall, or several other similar kinds of animations. Eventually, After tracking the suspect through five-ish locations, you'll arrive at your final destination. Assuming you have an arrest warrant, the local police will arrest the suspect and you'll receive credit for solving the case, which contributes to your overall career track at the Acme Detective Agency. Win enough cases and you'll get promoted. 
If, however, you didn't manage to get an arrest warrant in time, either because you didn't receive enough clues about the suspect to make a positive identification, or, like me the first time you played the game, you didn't realize that you actually had to generate an arrest warrant to win the game, you'll end up with a big loss, and the suspect will escape into the wild. The arrest warrant part of the game is actually a little bit interesting, though ultimately very simple given the age of the title. As you play, like we've talked about, you may receive information about the suspect's appearance, things like hair color, what vehicle they use, any distinguishable markings, stuff like that. What you need to do is take those suspect features and plug them into Interpol's suspect search database, which, assuming you have a unique combination of traits, will identify a single possible suspect for your case, which will then result in the creation of an arrest warrant. It's also possible for certain features to be common amongst several suspects, in which case the game will tell you you've narrowed down the list, but you can't generate an arrest warrant until you're absolutely sure what suspect it is. In concept, this is a pretty awesome way to handle suspect identification. In practice, you can almost certainly get a unique hit by using three to four different distinguishing characteristics, which even on later cases is pretty simple to acquire. You can potentially miss out on the needed clues, because whether you receive a clue or not feels pretty random, but in my playthrough, I think I only hit one or two cases where I came anywhere close to the deadline. I usually knew who the suspect was by a day or two into my investigation, which meant all I cared about from that point on was following the geographic clues to determine where to go next. As you can probably guess, the actual act of playing the game is pretty simple, at least from an interface and input perspective. There are some rudimentary 16-color graphics at play, which show various images from the cities and countries you visit, but otherwise, this is a purely text-driven affair, and navigating around the game world involves selecting options using a menu, selecting options by hitting the up and down arrow keys on your keyboard, and hitting enter on the option you want to select. The bigger piece of the game, though, is actually what happens outside of the computer program itself because Carmen Sandiego relies on real geographic and world facts to construct its cases, and you have to use your own knowledge of the real world to eventually solve the case that you're on. In 1985, that meant using the included hard copy World Almanac and doing some old-school book-based sleuthing to cross-reference the clues you receive in-game with the information you can find in the real world. In 2023... That meant using Google and Wikipedia, because I unfortunately do not have a copy of the game at the time of this recording, though I have seen a couple on eBay that I've been eyeing up. The interesting thing here, though, is that sometimes your internet searches might be a bit deeper than you might expect, because the game is based on facts as they existed in 1985. It does no good to look at current information for any of the locations you're exploring. In many instances, that information will not match what the game expects, because a lot can change in almost 40 years of history. From my perspective, though, this adds an additional, completely unplanned layer of depth to the experience. Not only do you have to find out the information and facts the game provides clues about, but you also have to kind of do some historical digging to truly get the right answer. In some cases, countries referenced in the game don't even exist anymore, so it's almost like you're an archaeologist-detective hybrid as you work to solve each case. 
Now, I do have to mention that I'm probably making this sound just a smidge more exciting than what the reality is when you play the game. And that's primarily because the game is pretty limited in the data it has available to it, which is completely understandable considering we're talking about a 1985 developed experience. If your goal is to achieve all promotional ranks and beat the game, you're going to eventually see repeat information, which you'll then be able to use to quickly navigate between the various countries without even having to look up entries in Wikipedia or any other sort of reference material. Once you have that info memorized, the game becomes a much more straightforward experience, and by the end of your time playing it, you'll mostly be going through the motions to complete the prerequisite number of cases to reach the Hall of Fame. All of that means one thing. The game is actually an effective learning tool, and it truly deserves its classification as edutainment. I actually learned something by playing the game, which is exactly why Carmen Sandiego became a mainstay in schools around the world following its release. I didn't set out to learn more about South American countries or the currency of various Asian cities, but that's exactly what happened through playing the game. And let me tell you, I was definitely entertained along the way. Before I memorized all of these geographic and social studies facts, I found the act of investigating to be engaging, and like I mentioned earlier, the fact that you can only use a keyboard throughout the game actually made the game more fun to play. I personally felt like a 1980s era detective with limited technology at their disposal, and for some reason, it felt really fun to play a game with such simplicity and restrictions on your control scheme. It was somehow evocative of the era in which the game was made, and for me, it made the whole experience that much more fun. I can totally see how Carmen Sandiego would be a fun way for younger gamers to actually learn something worthwhile, and like I said earlier, I did in fact play a version of the title when I was younger, and I can confirm that even as a child, I was tricked into learning while I played. Tricky move by Broderbund and the development team, but it worked. That being said, the limited capacity of the game's storage is something that later games in the series would improve, which would in turn make those future iterations of the title dramatically more replayable than the 1985 version that I played. Sure, there's always a chance you see something you haven't seen before, but if you play enough to reach the Hall of Fame, you'll probably have seen the majority of what the game has to offer. That doesn't mean the experience isn't worthwhile, it just means that the game's replayability isn't quite as strong as the games that would follow. Before we go on to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, I do want to take a look at the back of the box, because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for all of these games that we talk about. I really enjoy looking at how different companies have marketed their titles, how they tried to sell those products, because around this time, we didn't always have magazines that we could refer to reviews on. We certainly didn't have the internet and YouTube to be able to look things up and to watch gameplay videos. A lot of times when we were making buying decisions, the decision came down to if the box looked cool and if the back of the box explained something that we wanted to play. So, for where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? The back of the box says... Mystery, Intrigue, Adventure... Explore the great cities of the world as you stalk a master thief to the far corners of the globe. The crimes of the century. It's a dark day in New York City. The metropolis awakens to find the Statue of Liberty's torch gone, stolen. This could only be the work of Carmen Sandiego's gang, that notorious band of thieves that specializes in the theft of priceless national treasures. 
The citizens are outraged. The mayor's up in arms. And you've been assigned to the case. The Great International Chase. At the Acme Detective Agency, your crime computer gives you the facts. Just the facts. You hurry to the scene of the crime, and with a little investigation, you learn that the thief has been spotted heading for the airport. You're off on a whirlwind international chase through the great capitals of the world. London, Rome, Moscow, Kathmandu. The thief always seems to be one step ahead of you. Throw the book at him. In each city, you'll see a well-known landmark or monument, if it hasn't been stolen yet. You'll be briefed on the local geography and culture. And as you explore the city, you'll unearth clues to the crook's identity and where he or she has fled. Some clues you'll understand right away. Others will take a little research. Lucky for you, you have your trusty copy of the World Almanac and Book of Facts, the best information source any international crime buster could ask for. When in doubt... Look in the book, and all will become clear. Who do you bust? Use your police dossier to sort through the clues and then plug in your hunches into your crime computer to help you guess which of Carmen's cohorts did the deed. It could be Dazzle Annie Nonker, who runs the toughest yogurt bar this side of Suez. Or Nick Brunch, evil ex-private eye, ear, nose, and throat. Or even Carmen herself, quadruple agent for so many countries, even she's not sure which one she's working for. When you finally catch up with the thief, you'd better be ready with the right arrest warrant. Because if you make your move and you've got the wrong suspect, you'll be pulled off the case pronto. If you get it right, you're on your way to promotion and a chance to solve new and tougher cases in a new and different round, the world chase. So, grab your passport and get ready to move. You've got a plane to catch. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego by Dane Bigham? Menu-driven gameplay provides quick action. Players are introduced to world geography in an exciting game situation. Gameplay combines best elements of graphic adventures, trivia games, mysteries, and arcade animation. Friends or family can play together, helping the detective decipher clues by looking up facts in the World Almanac, one of the world's most comprehensive reference books. 10 possible suspects, 30 cities, nearly 1,000 clues, a different game every time you play. And there are several screenshots on the back of the box, as well as a couple of kids looking absolutely enthralled, reading their world almanac as they stare at a computer screen. And I've got to say, I kind of really liked the back of the box for Carmen Sandiego. It was a lot. There was a ton of content there. I mean, it was basically reading like a newspaper article, but honestly, it worked. It really nicely articulated all of the features of the game. And I enjoyed some of the puns that they had in there, some of the little jokes that they included in the back of the box. I thought it was pretty good. I was kind of shocked, actually, to see Dane Bigham's name on the box because, like we talked about, he sort of kind of disowned the concept behind the game as he was working on it. He worked on the menu-driven interface, and he took full credit for that. But the actual game story really wasn't his at the end of the day. So I was kind of surprised to see his name on the box. Hey, I guess it's good for him to be on the box because he really did start working on the game. and Without him, it wouldn't have existed. But I was kind of not expecting to see that. 
anyway, the back of the box, very effective. Certainly, if I saw the game in the store when I was younger, I would have gotten it. I did not actually see the game in the store, at least this version of the game, when I was younger, because I wasn't really a computer person until a little bit later. But like I said, I did play multiple versions of Carmen Sandiego over the years, including at school. And I can say that back of the box, it sold me on it. We are now going to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. There really isn't all that much to talk about from a graphical perspective here, as the game is, in a word, primitive by today's standards. The majority of the interface is text-driven on top of a black windowed background, though there are some graphical touches included as well. For one, every time you enter a new city, you'll see one of several different 16-color images representing a landmark or hotspot from that place. Those images are all recognizable, though the limitations of the EGA color palette do make each image look decidedly retro. There are also some computer graphics included in the title, including different representations of the various buildings you can explore when searching for clues, as well as some cartoon-like animations depicting the suspect you're pursuing and the police who eventually capture them. Those animations, though, are entirely generic, meaning that regardless of which suspect you're pursuing, you will always see the same animated images. This was likely done to keep the overall storage requirements to a minimum, but I will say it would have been a nice touch to have individual suspects represented with unique graphics, as later versions of the title would eventually implement. I feel like it would have added more character to each character, as opposed to everyone simply being a collection of traits and characteristics that never manifest itself on the screen. Overall, though, I can't complain about the graphics, because they were pretty much standard for the time. Do I wish there were more, or that they were a bit better detailed? Yeah, I do. But as long as you're prepared for a decidedly old-school visual experience, there is nothing negatively distracting here. Moving on to the sound and music, you know how I mentioned that there's not much to talk about related to the graphics? Well, there's even less to say here about the sound, because there is literally next to no music in the game. You have the main theme, which is a PC speaker native melody. Remember, sound cards were not pervasive in 1985. And then you have a couple of very short audio stingers that play while you play the game. And that's pretty much it. There are also some minor sound effects that play to mimic the sound of a dot matrix printer, as well as a couple of bleeps and bloops when performing various actions. Otherwise, though, that's the extent of the sound in the game. Though once again, I can't really complain here or hold the lack of an audio experience against the title. Because, strangely enough, I never felt like I was really missing anything despite there being no music or audio to speak of. I think this might be a situation where the gameplay, which in today's day and age involves a lot of internet searching, kind of lends itself to a silent, or at least quiet, experience. So I didn't personally experience any sort of issue with not having a ton of sounds playing during my playthrough. It's not like other games where music is almost a must to feel like you're playing a game. As an example, imagine Doom, but with no music, and only the most rudimentary effects for shooting your gun. It just wouldn't have the same impact, though frankly, Doom would probably still be one of the best games of all time regardless. For Carmen Sandiego, though, the lack of sound didn't really impact the game experience, though once again, make sure you know what you're getting into when you fire up this game for the first time. If you're expecting something more multimedia-friendly, like the CD-ROM versions released in later years, you'll definitely need to temper your expectations. 
And by the way, most of the music that you're hearing interspersed throughout this episode is not from this original DOS version, because like I said, there's pretty much no music there to pull from. So all of the music that I'm including in this episode actually comes from different versions of the game that have been released over time. Anyway, moving on to the narrative and story, there really isn't much of an overarching story to speak of, because each case is itself distinct, despite being tied together into the whole promotion-up-the-ranks concept that the game is based on. The general concept, like we talked about, is that you play a detective whose assignment is to apprehend a number of criminals who are attempting to steal priceless world treasures and artifacts. Through a combination of trivia smarts and careful observation, you eventually make your way through the game with the hope that you can someday capture the mastermind behind the whole criminal ring, Carmen Sandiego. Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego is almost more akin to a puzzle game than a true adventure, though there are definitely some light adventure game elements in here. Because of the focus on the puzzles, or more specifically, the educational trivia, I can completely understand and accept the fact that the game has no narrative connection between cases. It's not like you're role-playing a detective with outside motivations, friends and family, and any other distractions. You're simply tasked with solving a bunch of geographic capers, and the game delivers in that regard. Story-wise, eh, nothing really there, but that's okay given the context of the game. Moving on to the playability and controls, we already talked a good bit about the overall controls and how to play the game earlier, so I'm not going to belabor the point here. What I will say, though, is that the game's control scheme is incredibly simple, so much so that the only prerequisite to enjoying the game is the ability to read, which kind of makes sense considering the edutainment focus of the title. In fact, the game's controls are so simple that there was a handheld version of the title released a couple years ago, complete with big plastic buttons representing the keys on the computer you would need to use in order to be successful in the game. I actually do, in fact, have one of those devices, though I admit I never played the game on it, because I looked at that particular purchase more from the perspective of adding it to my collection versus actually playing it. Regardless, if you can press the arrow keys on your keyboard, and you can press the enter key, you have enough manual dexterity to play the game. The overall playability of the title is surprisingly engaging even today, which I admit was a bit of a surprise to me given the age of the title and the fact that Carmen Sandiego would eventually become synonymous with kids learning about geography. Though like we talked about, the original Carmen Sandiego was not marketed or designed exclusively as a children's title, so I guess I shouldn't have been too surprised. Regardless, the fact is that if you can turn off any expectation of modern niceties, like graphics, music, or an in-depth storyline, there's a lot to like about the game. I legitimately enjoyed my time with the title, with my only critique being that I don't really see myself going back to it anytime soon. The novelty wears off pretty quickly, and you'll learn the required facts without too much issue, after which the game becomes almost similar to a game of memory as opposed to a more engaging experience. There's definitely enough here to warrant playing until you get into the Hall of Fame, but I'm not sure there's much beyond that. Also, I do need to mention something about the game's difficulty. In short, I don't think I failed any case outside of the first time playing the game when I didn't realize I needed to get an arrest warrant before finding the suspect in his final hiding place. That one was entirely on me. But the rest of the cases I completed pretty easily, with only one or two coming anywhere close to the game's deadline of Sunday at 5pm. The reason I mention this 
is that I read various articles suggesting that the game becomes more difficult, or you have less time available as you rise the ranks of the detective agency. I didn't really see that, though I admit I don't have an original copy of the game, so I suppose it's possible the version I found was either bugged or somehow altered from the original title. I hope not, because I really enjoy experiencing these titles as they were meant to be experienced, but I feel the need to mention it regardless. Otherwise, the game controls fine, and remains a very playable title, even today. In fact, I'd argue that it is one of the most accessible computer titles from the mid-80s. Literally anyone with the ability to read can play, and have fun, with this one. So overall, how did it feel to play Carmen Sandiego? Honestly, I really enjoyed my time playing the game. Yes, it was simple, but it also brought me back to a time where games weren't dependent on ray tracing, surround sound, 50-hour storylines, and a ton of convoluted and complex controls to be considered a quality experience. If you're expecting something modern here, you will be disappointed. But as a game representative of the time in which it was released, there is a ton to like here. So overall, what is our verdict on Carmen Sandiego? Well, when I look at it, I see a game that is fun to play, at least for a couple of hours. After that, like I mentioned, it becomes a bit less engaging, because once you've explored a given location or committed some piece of the geographic and social studies facts to memory, you'll find the game becomes a simple pattern recognition, memory-driven experience, which isn't to say it's bad, it's just limited in terms of replayability, at least with modern search capabilities available to us. If you had to rely solely on the included World Almanac for all of your investigation work, I'd imagine the game would remain engaging a bit longer. Regardless, for me, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego is definitely something to be experienced, and is therefore a surefire golden oldie. It's a worthwhile experience, and I do recommend you give it a go if you have a chance but I don't see it as something that will capture your attention for any extended period of time. If you go in with the appropriate expectations, I do believe you'll have fun with this one, and the simplistic gameplay and overall objective of the game still holds up today, which is why I have no reservations adding Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego as the newest member to our list of Golden Oldies. was our episode on where in the world is Carmen Sandiego. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you. And there are a few ways you could reach out. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classic gaming T. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. And I have a discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best place to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out there, so I do highly encourage you all to join Discord and join the discussion. 
I'd also like to mention that we do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today, goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is focused on desert strike. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast engines, and if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. This is not about trying to harvest a bunch of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to get the feedback necessary to make sure that I continue to deliver the best possible podcast I can. We get new listeners every single day, which is awesome. The only way to continue to deliver the content that you all want to listen to is by making sure that I am, in fact, delivering that content and truly creating the best possible podcast that I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Desert Strike. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the... Wait, where's the music? Hold on. Wait a second. Oh, I know what I got to do. This is awesome. I always wanted to do this. To sign off, I will simply say, do it, Rockapella. Well, she sneaks around the world from Vienna to Carolina. Sticky finger filcher from Berlin down to Belize. Take you for a ride on a slow boat to China. Tell me where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Steal their soul in South Korea. Make it let it cook right on the From the Red Sea to Greenland, they'll be singing the blues. Well, they never Arkansas her steal the makeup from the the world is Carmen San Diego. She goes from Nashville to Norway, honey to Zimbabwe, Chicago to Czechoslovakia. I'm back. Well, she'll ransack Pakistan and run a scan in Scandinavia. Then she'll stick them up down under and go pick pocket worth. She was the missing misdemeanor when she stole the beans from Lima. Tell me where in the world is Carmen San Diego. She flies around the globe and she'll flip them every nation. She's a double feeling people with a taste for thievery. Her itinerary's loaded up with moving violence. Carmen San Diego. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Tell me. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Where could she be? Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Where in the world is Carmen San Diego?